Welcome to the podcast, Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. Hey, Crime Salad listeners, welcome back to another episode of Crime Salad. I'm your host, Ashley. And I'm Ricky. And this week, we are doing a two-parter. So, part one is this week. Next week, we'll be following up with a part two. That's how that works, right? Right. And um, our dog's also in the booth, and he's breathing heavy, so if you hear heavy (laughs) It's not me. (laughs) He's a pug, so I don't even know how he got in here, honestly. I don't know. But um, yeah, whenever you listen to part one, you're going to think that the episode's over. No, it's not. We got tons more of information for you. So buckle up. The other one's snoring now. Is there, wait, both pugs are in here? Both pugs. How did they get in here? It's a grumble. Oh my gosh. So this episode, we're actually going to Maysville, Colorado. Do you know anything about Maysville, Colorado, Ricky? Billy Mays lived there. Really? No. Okay. Well, anyways, we are taking you to a little town called Maysville, Colorado, which in 2010, there was a population of 135 people. So very small town. And fun little fact, the town of Maysville rests at an elevation of 9,504 feet above sea level. So. Oh, like a big hill. Like it's in the mountains of Colorado. Yeah. (laughs) Castle on a hill. (laughs) Yeah, in the mountains. And they actually have to add more flour to their cookies or their baked goods. What? Yeah. Did you ever look on the back of a flour pack? A flour bag? No. So it will say that if you're at a higher altitude, you'll have to add, I think, a tablespoon more to your cookies or whatever you're baking per like 3,000 feet above sea level and then like a thousand. What kind of pseudoscience is this? (laughs) I think it has something to do with like the altitude. Fake news. (laughs) Something like that. But I'm not a baker, so I I don't know what I'm talking about. I just just know that because, like, when my dad would, like, bake cookies, he would always add more flour to his cookies, even though they came out, like, rock hard. He lives in Pennsylvania. I know. We don't don't live in the mountains, but Hmm. I think he just kind of thought that because we live on, like, a hill that we're at a higher altitude, maybe. The biggest hill. (laughs) The biggest hill in the town. (laughs) Um, but anyway, yeah, little fun fact. And yeah, let's talk more true crime, not baked goods. I want to talk baked goods. Any scientists out there, explain this pseudoscience to me because I don't get it. Scientists. <laughs> need a full-on scientist. Or a scientist. baker. Baker could probably just tell us. Nope. Full-on scientist. All right. Well, let's jump in. Today, we bring you to Maysville, Colorado a quaint community situated in the Rocky Mountains. If you were to drive through Maysville, you would likely take a gravel road surrounded by dense pine forests. 
You might see log cabins dotting the landscape, and the community's bright red historic schoolhouse would stand out among the trees. These scenic views, hiking trails, and a distinct small-town charm make Maysville a hidden gem for outdoor enthusiasts. Before the year of 2020, the town, with less than 200 residents, was largely unknown to the public. That was until the mysterious disappearance of a Maysville local. In this episode, we explore the case that elevated Maysville, Colorado into the spotlight, a case that has stumped investigators year after year. Each piece of evidence gathered by law enforcement has left investigators with more questions than answers. A case defined by shocking text messages, absurd alibis, and a spy pen. Today, I will take you and Ricky through a mysterious disappearance that has everyone asking what really happened to Suzanne Morphew. Are you ready for this one, Ricky? I am. Born and raised in Alexandria, Indiana, Suzanne Morphew was a big surprise to her mother, Adrienne. Adrienne had three children already, and at 36 years old, she hadn't planned on another pregnancy. And by today's standards, it would be perfectly normal for a woman in her late 30s and early 40s to start a family. However, in 1970, this was not the case. At this point, Adrian's youngest child was already nine years old, and starting over seemed impossible. Suzanne's sister Melinda recalls their mother lamenting that she would be the oldest mother in the PTA. While Adrian was definitely not ready for another child, Melinda was overjoyed that she would soon be an older sister. She was so excited, in fact, that after hearing the news that her mom was pregnant, she visited Fernan's dress shop in Alexandria and bought Suzanne's first outfit made of pink velveteen fabric. Fancy. Very. Now somehow Suzanne must have sensed her sister's excitement as she was born on Melinda's 15th birthday, April 30th, 1971. And in an interview, Melinda describes Suzanne as her 15th birthday present. That's like the sweetest thing ever. Pretty sweet. Now, as a teen, Suzanne was an active student joining her high school's German club and competing for Homecoming Queen. In her 1987 yearbook picture, she beams at the camera under a carefully styled perm. And just a few pages over is her future husband, Barry Morphew. Two years her senior, Barry was also a model student. He stood out among his peers as a talented baseball player and was eventually picked up by the Toronto Blue Jays. Unfortunately, Barry's baseball career stopped short because of an injury. When Barry graduated high school, he and Suzanne began dating. A baseball star and a homecoming queen contestant, the attractive couple seemed to be made for each other. Angelina and Brad Pitt. That's what I was thinking. Now, after Suzanne's high school graduation, she joined Barry at Purdue University, where they began to build their lives together. Suzanne studied elementary education, while Barry studied horticulture production. And in 1994, after graduating from Purdue, they were married at Grace Baptist Church. In their wedding photo, Barry and Suzanne seem like a picture-perfect couple. But a darker truth lurked just beneath the surface. 
So with their college studies and wedding behind them, Barry and Suzanne continued to follow the straight and narrow and entered into the workforce. Suzanne was hired as a middle school teacher just 30 minutes away from her hometown, Alexandria, and Barry started his own landscaping company. The couple seemed to be thriving and were on their way to having a family of their own. Sadly, soon after their wedding, Suzanne was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, a type of blood cancer. The news was shocking, and it meant that starting a family would have to be put on hold. Devastated but determined to recover, Suzanne endured cancer treatments while Barry stood by her side. Miraculously, after a long recovery, Barry and Suzanne welcomed their first daughter, Mallory, in 1999. Another daughter, Macy, was born in 2003. With the birth of her two daughters, Suzanne made the decision to quit her job at the local middle school to stay home with her girls. Barry and Suzanne were deeply devoted to their children and seemingly to each other. Now let's fast forward to 2018. That year, their oldest, Mallory, began her studies at Western Colorado University. Not wanting to lose touch with their daughter, Barry, Suzanne, and their youngest daughter, Macy, moved to Maysville, Colorado. And around that same time, Suzanne was diagnosed with cancer, again. In an interview, Suzanne's sister, Melinda, described Barry's devotion to his wife. She recalled Barry carrying Suzanne around their home after her treatments because she was too weak to walk. He was our hero, Melinda said. He was a loving and serving father to his family. Now, on May 10th, 2020, which also happened to be Mother's Day, Suzanne Morphew decided to go for a ride on her mountain bike. Despite going through chemotherapy, Suzanne was very active and enjoyed the outdoors. So according to her family, she strapped on her helmet and blue camelback and set out on a little Mother's Day excursion. And that same day, her daughters Mallory and Macy were heading home from a camping trip. On the drive home, they texted their mother, wishing her a happy Mother's Day. Their girls waited, and they waited for a reply, but Suzanne was not responding. Mallory and Macy knew that this was not like their mother. She would never take that long to text her girls back. Concerned, her daughters contacted their father, Barry, to tell him that Suzanne was not responding to their texts. Now that morning, Barry had left for a job about 150 miles away in Broomfield, Colorado, so he had no way to check on Suzanne himself. He called their neighbors and asked if they would go check to see if her mountain bike was somewhere by the house. The neighbors stopped by the Morphews, but found no bike and no trace of Suzanne. Hearing the news, Barry asked the neighbors to call the police. Wait, why wouldn't Barry just call the police himself? And also, why are you looking for a mountain bike? It's just weird. Like, why aren't you looking for Suzanne? Why is that not your first question? Right. On Sunday evening at around 5.45 p.m., police received a report of a missing 49-year-old woman in Maysville, Colorado. Law enforcement immediately called Chafee County Search and Rescue to begin searching for Suzanne along local biking trails. Then they contacted the local Department of Corrections to request the use of their tracking dogs. The community of Maysville almost doubled in size as over 100 individuals joined together to find the local mom. 
Although her bike was discovered soon after the search began, Suzanne was nowhere to be found. Day after day, the community used every resource available to find Suzanne. Drone operators, divers, the scent-tracking dogs worked endlessly to return the devoted mother to her family. Three days after her mysterious disappearance, Barry offered a $100,000 reward for his wife's safe return, no questions asked. And Suzanne's nephew, Noel, created a GoFundMe page to raise funds for the search, the family, and compensating volunteers. Barry is listed as a co-founder of the GoFundMe page. Now, the next day, a family friend matched the reward amount, bringing the total reward to $200,000. Noel played a large role in the community search efforts, also creating the Find Suzanne Morphew Facebook group where he posted dozens of daily updates on her disappearance. Now, while family divisions grew, it seemed like more evidence was coming to light. On May 15th, five days after Suzanne disappeared, law enforcement revealed to the public that personal items of Suzanne's had been found, but they provided no additional information. The next Sunday, Barry released a video on the Find Suzanne Morphew Facebook group page, begging for the return of his wife. And in the video, he pleads, quote, Suzanne, if anyone is out there that can hear this, that has you, please, we'll do whatever it takes to bring you back. Referencing the reward, Barry says, no questions asked, however much they want. That same day, officials asked the community to save all of the video footage from security cameras taken from May 8th through May 12th, as they might be asked to provide this footage to the sheriff's office. Now, weeks later, officials hadn't given the community many more updates, keeping the details of the case under wraps. The public became anxious for answers, and without any developments from law enforcement, internet sleuths began to speculate about what may have happened to Suzanne on that fateful day. Conspiracies ranged from mountain lion attacks to a random abduction, and many were suspicious of Barry, Suzanne's adoring husband. The husband who she had gone to high school with, the husband who had taken care of her during her cancer treatments, and the husband who had posted a $100,000 reward for his missing wife. But without any information from authorities, all anyone could do was guess. Time ticked by and many properties were searched, including the Morphe residence. But law enforcement chose not to share details with the public. No arrest had been made, and official search efforts ended on July 9th. Then, on August 11th, Suzanne's family spoke with Fox 21 News about the ongoing investigation. In a shocking statement, a family member who wished to remain anonymous said that they believed that Barry was tampering with the investigation. The anonymous source revealed that data collected from Barry's truck did not match the information that he provided to the police, and allegedly Barry had also refused to take polygraph tests. While many armchair internet detectives had believed that Barry was involved in his wife's disappearance, this was the first time a credible source had publicly addressed his possible involvement. And then about two weeks after Suzanne's anonymous family member made that sensational statement, Barry spoke with reporters to share his perspective of the investigation. He said, quote, The sheriff's department screwed this whole thing up from the beginning, and now they are trying to cover it up and blame it on me. 
He alleged that a friend of his was with investigators at the time Suzanne's bike was found and that this friend witnessed deputies mishandle the evidence. When reporters asked about the accusations from Suzanne's family that Barry had refused to take a polygraph test, he claimed that he had never been asked to do a polygraph. And he said that he had given hours of testimony to the FBI and that, quote, there is nothing I am hiding, end quote. Isn't that something that uh, someone who's hiding something would say? Yeah, I think you're right, Ricky. Well, a co-worker of Barry's would disagree. On May 10th, 2020, Jeff Puckett, who worked for Barry's landscaping business, was asked to meet Barry in Broomfield for a job. And they planned to stay at a Holiday Inn that night in rooms Barry had purchased for them before starting a new project on Monday. In an interview with Daily Mail, Puckett said that by the time he arrived at the Holiday Inn, Barry had left due to a family emergency. This alone wasn't too unusual, but as he opened the door to his hotel room, something smelled off. The room reeked of chlorine. Puckett immediately noticed that the room had been used and guessed that Barry had been there before him. Barry had purchased the room after all. And addressing this overwhelming smell, Puckett said, I thought the pool might have been open, but it wasn't. Adding to the mystery, Puckett found a piece of Barry's mail in a trash can and towels tossed all over the floor. He found it odd that Barry's mail would be in the hotel room and mentioned the letter had something to do with property insurance. Puckett waited for two days at the Holiday Inn without any instruction from Barry on the job that they were to complete that week or any tools for the project. And when Puckett made his statement on September 2nd, 2020, he claimed that he hadn't heard from Barry since the incident. He said, quote, My first thought was that this must be like an alibi. That's what it felt like. Just as he had with his first public accusation, Barry went to Fox 21 News to refute the claims. The next day, Barry agreed to an interview with the news station. He said that he had been planning this job with Puckett for months and that it had nothing to do with Suzanne's disappearance. I did nothing wrong in the hotel, Barry said. There's cameras all over the hotel. I did nothing wrong. Barry also claimed that he, too, had smelled chlorine when entering the hotel room. But he suggested that the hotel used bleach to clean the rooms because of, well, COVID. The Holiday Inn later confirmed that the pool was closed due to COVID and that they did not use chlorine-based cleaners in their rooms. Instead, they exclusively cleaned with peroxide products. Interesting. So where did that chlorine come from? Well, wouldn't chlorine just smell like bleach? Right. They were probably associating it with the pool, but the pool's closed. Right. So they're thinking chlorine. But it's just bleach. Throwing it all over the place. This guy's a liar. What do you think? I think he's lying. Now, by September of 2020, this is four months after Suzanne disappeared, the Chafee County Sheriff's Office had stopped informing the public of any updates. Andrew Mormon, Suzanne's older brother, said that Sheriff John, their main point of contact during the investigation, had gone completely silent. He continued, can't get any responses back from him at all. Frustrated with the lack of communication from the officials, Andrew took the investigation into his own hands. 
So like we said, four months after her disappearance, with no significant developments and silence from the investigative team, Andrew enlisted the help of Profiling Evil, a YouTube channel, and a podcast created by Mike King to share the principles of criminal investigations and profiling. He details real cases and the tactics used by investigators around the world. Andrew's collaboration with Mike King was a significant development in the search for Suzanne as Mike boasted a distinguished career in law enforcement and cold case investigations. A retired homicide detective, an author of several books on violent crime, and the director of a prominent cold case team, Mike was the perfect person to continue the search for Suzanne. Mike was happy to contribute to the search efforts. He stated, we're just providing a platform where people can get to Andy and his team. Using profiling evil as a platform to spread awareness of Suzanne's disappearance proved to be incredibly successful. Profiling evil's Chris McDonough also assisted in growing their cause. He explained that the involvement had grown exponentially and everyone from divers to dog handlers had joined the search for Suzanne, increasing the initial search efforts tenfold. Over 1,000 people signed up to help with the case through the Profiling Evil website, and Barry was not one of them, calling the effort a publicity stunt. The media platform also offered an evidence room on their website where citizen detectives could submit tips related to the case. Then, with direction from Andrew, Profiling Evil organized a search that ran from September 24th through September 29th. It's really interesting how the internet can just come together. But how awful must Andrew have felt to be given the cold shoulder by the sheriff's department? I mean, honestly, it probably sucked. Like, this is his sister. He didn't want the case to just go cold. And to him, they're just, like, dropping this case. Like, they're not going to look into it any further. But I feel like they are keeping things kind of separate from the public at this point. I mean, that's just my take right now. Hey, crime listeners, we are taking a quick moment here to introduce you to our friends Tyrella and Tori. They are two sisters and host of Killer Queens who are obsessed with true crime. They focus on discussing cases as lighthearted as possible while still maintaining the most respect for the victims and their families. I'm a 90s kid, so I find myself nodding and laughing at the references they make. They are so relatable, I feel like I'm hanging out with two friends I never met. You really need to check them out. They're the only place you're going to find your mix of true crime and friends references. So here's the queens themselves here to give you a little preview of what their show is all about. Hey y'all, I'm Torella. And I'm Tori. And we are sisters and host of Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. Now, we could tell you about our show, but in the words of LeVar Burton, don't take our word for it. Here is an actual listener's description of the show. Okay, she says, Think Cher Horowitz meets Dolly Parton, create a love child. Then that person meets Bill Curtis, our one and only. And two random girls are the product of that. That's Torella and Tori, sisters and hosts. Smart, weird, pretty, blonde, hilarious, Southern, and just really okay with being themselves, even when it is weird. Oh, and it's weird. It's real weird. It made me realize they became their role models without even meaning to. Oh my gosh. We are so hashtag blessed to be mentioned in the top true crime podcast list on Marie Claire, Cosmopolitan, and Women's Health Magazine for 2021 as well. The Women's Health Magazine review concludes with, each episode contains a healthy dose of comedy and 90s references. What more could you ask for? 
New episodes release every Monday beginning in 2022 and are available on your favorite podcast app right now. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen. But no pressure. We're not your real mom and we never will be. Bye. Bye. Hi, this is Daniel Roof, the Real GM Radio Podcast. It's a Texas showdown in the postseason, and Bet Online is your number one source for all your baseball wagering information, up to the minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns, everything you need to stay up to speed on each league championship series and through the World Series. Don't forget, Bet Online is where you have the latest game odds, present totals for the NFL and college football, plus real time updates on statistics, news, and odds, serious up betting on football. So head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action at Bet Online, where the game starts. According to a statement provided by the Chafee County Sheriff's Office, as well as the District Attorney's Office, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation and the FBI joined volunteers during the privately organized search. Law enforcement was able to collect several additional pieces of evidence found by volunteers, which would help them in the ongoing investigation. The sheriff's office also stated that cadaver dogs alerted handlers of human remains at three separate properties, but that none of the alerts proved to be viable leads. But Sheriff John of Chafee County commented, While the public may not see all of the effort being put forth in this case, I can assure the community that this investigation continues to move forward. With this case reaching more and more of the public, knowledge of Suzanne's disappearance began to explode. The next month in October, Nancy Grace spoke to Dr. Oz about the case, highlighting the chlorine smell at both the Holiday Inn and at the Morphew residence. Suzanne Morphew was now on the world stage, and the public suspicion of Barry began to grow. Earlier that month, the Morphew residence was listed on Zillow for $1.7 million. Barry stated that the reason he sold the home was because his daughters were too afraid to stay there. Macy and Mallory believed that their mother was abducted at the house and did not want to face the same fate. To spectators, this seemed like an odd excuse to sell the home. Suspicions escalated further when Barry sold a second property in February of 2021. Though the investigation continued, law enforcement stayed relatively quiet about Suzanne's case throughout the remainder of 2020. Several major search efforts conducted by volunteers and law enforcement had brought a few pieces of evidence to light, but they seemed to be no closer to finding Suzanne or her remains. And while the public suspicions of Barry grew, with no further developments, all they could do was speculate. That was until Barry was arrested on May 5th, 2021, just under one year since the disappearance of his wife. Wait, he got arrested? Finally. Wait, so what did they have on this guy? Now, although law enforcement had still not found Suzanne or her remains, five days shy of the anniversary of her disappearance, Barry Morphew was arrested and faced a slew of charges. He was charged with tampering with a deceased human body, tampering with physical evidence, possession of a dangerous weapon, attempted influence of a public servant, and the first-degree murder of Suzanne Morphew. Wow. Yeah. The day after his arrest, Barry appeared in court to hear the charges against him, wearing an orange and white striped jumpsuit with his wrists and ankles in shackles. His trial date was set for April 28, 2022. 
Now, days after his arrest, prosecutors filed additional charges against Barry, claiming that he committed voter fraud in October of 2020. They alleged that Barry submitted a presidential ballot in Suzanne's name. Now, a year after his wife's disappearance, Barry faced seven charges related to her murder and for forging public records in her name. While family, friends, and spectators were relieved that Barry was finally behind bars, the lead investigator in the case felt that the arrest was premature. He remarked that the arrest was the worst decision that could have been made and that the case wasn't ready to move forward. All right, so buckle up because for the remainder of this episode, we will be going through all of the evidence that was uncovered during the first year of the investigation into Suzanne's disappearance. The 130-page long affidavit was the longest many county officials had ever seen. So bear with us. Starting on August 9th, 2021, three months after Barry's arrest, marked day one of an explosive four-day preliminary hearing. Evidence brought forward over the next four days would determine whether Barry Morphew would be tried for the murder of his wife, Suzanne, if the presiding judge, Judge Murphy, didn't find the evidence compelling enough, the charges against Barry could be dismissed. On the first day of the hearing, the court called Commander Alexander Walker of the Chafee County Sheriff's Office to the witness stand. Walker revealed that there was no evidence of blood, skid marks, struggle, or damage to Suzanne's bike. The personal item found days later was revealed to be a turquoise helmet and showed no signs of damage or blood. The Morphew home was also sealed off for a period of 10 days before the surviving family was allowed to re-enter. His truck was also confiscated by authorities for testing. Now, oddly, after leaving the home, he mentioned to police that the house had been cleaned because his daughter's friend was staying with him. He commented that Suzanne had also changed out the bedsheets for a friend. But who mentions that to the police for an investigation? Yeah, it's pretty weird. Now, at this point in the hearing, the defense questioned if Suzanne's blood had been found anywhere in the home. And Walker admitted it had not. Shockingly, when the defense followed up to ask whether they had found any of Suzanne's blood at any point of the investigation, the prosecution said no. The only blood they had found in the entire house was on a used tampon. And with the thousands of hours and the massive search efforts across multiple organizations, the location of Suzanne's body or her remains was still unknown. Next, in a surprising twist, Walker revealed the discovery of a spy pen 10 days after Suzanne Morphew's disappearance. Investigators found the pen, which belonged to Suzanne, in the couple's walk-in closet. The pen was a voice-activated device designed to record conversations. Walker explained that Suzanne had purchased the pen with the intention of catching her husband, Barry, in an affair with another woman. In a surprising twist, she instead revealed her own extramarital affair. Suzanne had inadvertently recorded her own conversations with a mystery man. Later in the hearing, FBI Special Agent Ken Harris would mention that the pen also recorded an argument between Suzanne and Barry, where they can be heard arguing about money. And also in the recording, she accused Barry of controlling what she wore. Now, months after the discovery of the spy pen, investigators identified Suzanne's lover as Jeff Libler, 
an old flame of Suzanne's from high school. Jeff lived in Michigan with his wife and six children. Suzanne and Jeff had exchanged naked pictures and text messages revealed that they called each other soulmates. Now, prior to her disappearance, Suzanne would message Jeff on LinkedIn in fear of Barry discovering her texts. On May 6th, Jeff messaged Suzanne on the social media site saying, I know these next few days are going to be rough. Conversations with Sheila revealed that Suzanne truly wanted to be married to Jeff and not Barry. Jeff confessed to law enforcement that he doubted Barry knew anything about their extramarital relationship. And if he had, Jeff said, he would have come after me. In the wake of Suzanne's disappearance, Jeff had not initially come forward to help with the search, but once law enforcement approached him, he fully cooperated, submitting his DNA, his phone records, and passwords for deleted accounts. And after reviewing the information that he had provided, investigators confirmed his alibi and the man was cleared. Next, evidence that the Morphew's home surveillance system was tampered with was shared with the court. According to Walker, DVR cables were missing from the system, which made it inoperable on May 9, 2020. The cables were tested for DNA, and oddly, only Suzanne showed as a possible match. In one of his final statements, Walker mentioned that Barry told law enforcement that his guns were kept in a safe, but that Walker had found a shotgun leaning up against a wall inside of the residence and another gun in a closet. Then, FBI agent Ken Harris took the witness stand. While at this point in the investigation, law enforcement confessed that they had not found Suzanne's phone or her charger, detective salvaged messages backed up on her iCloud account and information from her cell phone company to obtain important pieces of evidence. Suzanne's text messages to friends and family would become a key component in the case against her husband. Agent Harris spent the next several hours outlining conversations between Suzanne and her friend, Sheila Oliver. According to Sheila, Barry would pit his daughters against their mother, creating a painful division in this seemingly picture-perfect family. In another conversation, Sheila indicated that an incident occurred where Barry forced Suzanne into a closet, held a gun to his head, and asked Suzanne if this is what she wanted. Additional text messages between Suzanne and Sheila revealed that Suzanne wanted to divorce Barry, but felt that she would wait until her daughters were out of the house and on their own before leaving him. In one message, Suzanne said, I just wish he would get fed up with me and let me get out of the marriage. Next, Agent Harris uncovered more details about Suzanne and Jeff Libber's relationship. He claims that the two reconnected sometime before 2019, and by February of that year, Suzanne and Jeff got a hotel in New Orleans together. The pair met several more times that year and communicated through LinkedIn and WhatsApp when Suzanne began to fear that Barry knew about the affair. In an interview with Libler, Agent Harris said that his relationship with Suzanne made him nervous because he didn't want to lose his family and he didn't want Suzanne to be remembered for her affair. On the second day of the preliminary hearing, more details came to light regarding Barry's whereabouts, the day of his wife's disappearance. This time, retired FBI agent Jonathan Grusing took the witness stand. Cell phone tower pings, data from Barry's truck, and surveillance footage painted an eerie picture of the events leading up to Suzanne's disappearance. 
Agent Grusing testified that the last known photo of Suzanne was a sunbathing selfie that was taken on May 9th at 2.03 p.m. This photo was sent to Jeff Libler. Barry arrived at home about 40 minutes later, and strangely, his phone pings seemingly show him running around his house. There could be many explanations for the odd behavior, but when asked what he was doing that day, no one could have predicted his answer. Barry claims that he was chasing a chipmunk with a gun around his house while his wife was sunbathing outside. Been there. Then, three minutes after he arrived home, his phone went into airplane mode. Was he on an airplane? No, he was chasing that chipmunk around his house, inside the house, with a gun. Can you believe that? Do you think the police really believe that? Do you think they're like, oh, okay. Maybe it's the truth. Well, Barry's outlandish claims were not taken seriously by investigators, who think that he was most likely chasing Suzanne around the house. Grusing continued that day on May 10th between 3.25 a.m. and 3.51 a.m., before Barry had left for his work trip in Broomfield. The doors of his truck were opened and shut. This information indicated that someone was in the truck early that morning. After this, Barry's cell phone was tracked moving towards the area where Suzanne's bike was eventually discovered. Then, Grusing claimed that while they had never located Suzanne's phone, it last pinged off a cell phone tower on May 10th at 4.23 a.m. Then, eight minutes later, Barry's phone was switched to airplane mode. Around 5.30 a.m., Barry's phone was back online, and exactly one minute later, he texted his mother wishing her a happy Mother's Day. A few minutes before 7 o'clock in the morning, Barry texted Suzanne, asking her if she was awake yet, then messaged her, Happy Mother's Day. I love you. In a chilling development, Grusing shared that surveillance video, along with phone and truck data, indicated that Barry had gone on five trash runs in Broomfield, Colorado. He threw away objects at the Holiday Inn where he had checked in, a men's warehouse, and other random locations around the city. Barry gave conflicting stories to investigators about what exactly he was doing when he visited each of these locations. Honestly, what excuse could he possibly have for visiting all of these locations. I'm thinking maybe dumpster diving, men's warehouse, maybe throwing out some cool suits. But other than that, at four o'clock in the morning. Wow, that's specific. And here comes more lies from Barry. The third day of the preliminary hearing, Grusing went into more detail about what Barry claimed that he was doing on these five separate trash runs. Barry claimed that he went to the first location, a bus stop, to throw away junk. The second location was an unidentified hotel. Barry told investigators that he had stopped there hoping to get a free breakfast, but didn't throw anything away. And the third location was a McDonald's. Here, Barry said that he had thrown away trash from his truck, but didn't buy any food. The fourth location was a men's warehouse, where Barry said he did not recall dropping off trash. However, evidence suggests that Barry sat for 40 minutes in the men's warehouse parking lot. And the fifth and final location of the suspected trash dump was at the Holiday Inn, where Puckett, Barry's co-worker, had waited two days for him. Here, cameras captured Barry throwing away several items into the hotel's garbage bins. When Grusing was asked by the defense if he thought Barry drove to Broomfield with evidence from a murder, Grusing replied, yes. Then Grusing detailed another discovery using evidence collected from his cell phone and truck. 
On the morning of May 10, 2023, Barry took a detour from traveling to his work site in Broomfield, turning left on Highway 50, where Suzanne's helmet was found. Grusing asked Barry why he had decided to go out of his way to drive down this road, which happened to be where Suzanne's helmet was found. Barry claimed that he saw a herd of elk down the road, and he wanted to find out if they were shedding their antlers. While tire tracks were found down that road early on in the investigation, none of the tracks matched Barry's truck. Next, Grusing revealed the discovery of a needle sheath used to encase tranquilizer darts in the Morpheus dryer. During the investigation, law enforcement found a non-operational tranquilizer gun and empty darts in the garage, but no other darts were found. Barry told investigators that it could have been in the wash, but it's got nothing to do with me alleging that he uses the tranquilizer gun to shoot deer and harvest their antlers. The prosecution also revealed photos of the Morpheus home immediately after Suzanne disappeared. The images of the home's garage showed two buckets of hot tub chemicals and a camelback. Photos taken of Suzanne's car showed her purse and her ID were still inside. In addition to these items, an unspent 22 caliber shell was found on Suzanne's side of her bed in the master bedroom. At the end of the third day, Grusing outlined some odd behaviors and comments from Barry during their investigation. For example, during an interview with Grusing, Barry asked, can you just give me immunity if I sit and just open up my life to you? On the fourth and last day of the preliminary hearing, Grusing was back on the stand. Much of the day was spent reviewing evidence brought up in prior days of the hearing and questioning witnesses. After days of the prosecution dominating the conversation, the defense team came armed with evidence to counter the claims against DeBerry. The defense pointed out several facts that showed Barry could not be tried for the murder of his wife, namely, that cadaver dogs didn't alert to smell at key locations Male DNA that did not match Barry's had been found in Suzanne's car. Barry had helped search for Suzanne for months after she went missing, and most importantly, no body, no blood, no remains had been found after one year of searching. While questioning witnesses during the entirety of the hearing, the defense team representing Barry seemed to put forward three possible theories that would explain Suzanne's disappearance while proving Barry's innocence. First, they claimed that Suzanne used drugs and abused alcohol. Barry suggested that her drug dealer may have been involved in her disappearance. Second, the defense alleged that Suzanne may have run away. She had an active affair with another man and had claimed that she had wanted to leave Barry days before she disappeared. On top of that, Barry claimed that $70,000 was missing in cash from a safe in his garage. And investigators found that Suzanne had opened up a secret bank account with Green Dot Bank. With the money from the safe, Suzanne may have left all of her possessions behind to start a new life with her lover, Jeff. And only a few days before she went missing, Suzanne had purchased new tires for her bike. A third theory was raised by the defense, which was the possibility that she had been abducted by a stranger. Foreign DNA had been found on her bicycle that could not be identified. Partial DNA from three males had also been found in Suzanne's Land Rover on her glove box and in the back seat. The FBI had combed their national DNA database attempting to identify the three males. 
Shockingly, the DNA came back as a possible match with three sexual predators who had never been caught or identified. The prosecution discredited the theory that one or more of these sexual predators may have been involved in Susian's abduction. FBI agent Joseph Cahill explained that the DNA match was inconclusive. According to Cahill, the genetic data gathered from the DNA was limited. Hi, this is Daniel Roof, the Real GM Radio Podcast. It's a Texas showdown. The postseason and Bet Online is your number one source for all your baseball wagering information, up to the minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. Everything you need to stay up to speed on each league championship series and through the World Series. Don't forget, Bet Online is where you have the latest game odds, present totals for the NFL and college football, plus real time updates on statistics, news, and odds. Serious up betting on football. So head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action at Bet Online, where the game starts. Okay, so with all of this evidence, what do you think of these theories? I mean, anything's possible at this point. They they don't have a body yet, you know? I mean, really, it, it could be true, and but they are theories. Right, like the fact that she could have started a new life with that money. Because she wanted a divorce. It's like, obviously, we're on the side that she was murdered, but it's like, what if? There's always that possibility. Well, now the exhausting four-day preliminary hearing was over. And now it was time for Judge Murphy to decide whether Barry Morphew would go to trial for the murder of Suzanne. Murphy stated to the court that he had taken 25 pages of notes during the 20 hours of testimony. And while the defense wanted a quick decision, hoping that without a body, blood, or remains, Barry could just be released from jail... Murphy stated that he wanted to make the correct decision, not the fastest one. Weeks later, Murphy came to a decision. Even without the body of Suzanne Morphew, there was probable cause for the charges of murder and tampering with evidence. Barry Morphew would be tried for the murder of Suzanne. Just when you thought the episode is over, next week we will have an absolutely shocking episode for you. There are so many new developments in this case that we have to split it up into two episodes. So in part two of this episode, we will continue to tell you the story of Suzanne's disappearance, reveal new discoveries related to the case, and discover Barry Morphew's fate. Hi, this is Chris Hart, host of Plot or Chris Hart. BetOnline is your number one source for all your baseball wagering info with up-to-the-minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. BetOnline has everything you need to stay up to speed on each league championship series all the way through the World Series. And don't forget, BetOnline is where you get the latest game odds, spreads, and totals for the NFL and college football right at your fingertips. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on all the action. BetOnline, where the game starts.